The Lord be with you. We are still in our book by Mark Hort. Uh, if you have it in front of you, we are on page 58. According to this thing, that's uh, somewhere around 66. And location, 1,475. Does anybody know what that means? I guess if two people are on Kindle, it tells you where you're both at. But it still doesn't give you the right page number, so I don't know. It's a, it's a suffering thing. We had that up at school, too, where guys would be reading books in Kindle and others would be doing other things, and you never knew where anybody was. So, um, let's see. Our new digs, our arrangement, it's kind of different. Um, where is she? Charmaine's not here. Charmaine Scroggum's doing a little... Uh, graduation thing for Elise in here this afternoon, so told her she could do it the way she wanted. So if you don't like it, talk to her, don't talk to me. <laughs> I had nothing to do with it. So uh, let us start with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the grace you have shown us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and that for all things that we can't do, you have done for us. For we are just but beggars asking for your mercy, crying out, Kyrie, Lord, have mercy on us. Help us always to remember this and, and to keep crying out until the days, our final days, where you have mercy on us and bring us to heaven to be with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I brought my phone because I thought that clock was still dead. It's not, so I hope it doesn't ring. Um, so we're talking about uh, by grace. Now let's just uh, jump right in. That justification, I can see the same thing, it's cool. Um, and salvation are given us by grace is quite clear even from a surface reading of St. Paul's letters, particularly those to, to the Roman and Galatian congregations. Um, they were tied up in uh, still making things of law and being caught up in law, laws about circumcisions, uh, others were laws about uh, what diets should be eaten, and um, he wrote letters to straighten these churches out. Um, in Reformation times, even Luther's bitterest opponents had to admit that justification was by grace, although they gave a completely different explanation of what grace is. By grace, they understood a supernatural power, a sort of spiritual electricity poured into people by God at their conversion, enabling them to produce the love and good works by which they were then justified. Uh, problem there is, well, you got the power, and if you don't do it, well, it's on you. <laughs> so, um, you know, it was supposed to be infused grace that uh, allowed you to do the good works that allowed you to be justified. The question therefore became, is saving grace, this energy poured into men, infused grace, or is it something in God, namely his unearned favor in Christ, as Luther taught. Uh, what do you think? Infused grace or unearned favor in Christ? As Luther taught, there's a good clue. Um, we, we have nothing apart from Christ. Jesus tells us this himself. You know, without me, you can do nothing. Um, now, it is quite true that the, that the Greek word uh, charis, which, though, which through the Latin gratia became English grace, it is sometimes used in the same sense of gift of grace, that is, a gift bestowed on us ooh, 
stop that. Um, what did you do? I just lost my place. Uh, okay. Okay, there we go. Uh, that is a gift bestowed on us by God's favor. For example, Romans uh, 15, 15. But the question is not about special meanings. It's about the primary sense of the word, when it means the grace by which we are justified and saved. For this context, Paul defines exactly what he means. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, literally according to grace, but as an obligation. Um, so as many of you go to work every week, um, you don't go to work and work 40 hours, 50 hours, 60 hours, whatever, and then go to your employer and say, oh, just give me that gift. You know, if, if they don't pay you, you just go, well, I didn't get the gift this week. Um, you expect what you earned for the work you did for the week. Um, you may not always get as much as you thought you should have gotten, but there's an agreement and you get what's been agreed upon. Um, so again, if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. By grace, then, is the same gratis, free of charge, without cost or payment on our part, although it did cost God a great deal. So, in other words, grace is the opposite of earning or deserving. But uh, that's up there. Um, these differences have far-reaching consequences. If with St. Paul and Luther we understand God's saving grace as his unearned favor in Christ, then grace and works as a way of salvation are opposites. They exclude each other. Salvation must be either by grace or by works, not both. Since it is by grace, it cannot be by works. This is Paul's argument throughout. But if one is allowed to redefine grace as an inner energy which produces the works, which in turn make us pleasing and acceptable to God, then one can turn the either or of Paul and Luther into both and. Salvation is by grace and therefore by works because grace is now simply a code word for a works-producing energy. Um, do you see the difference? Either grace is a gift and you got it freely, but if it's an energy or infused and gives you the ability to do something, then all of a sudden if you don't do what it gives you the ability to do, you don't have grace. So you're, you're in the process of earning. Um, St. Paul's logic, if by grace, then not by works, is completely derailed into the more it is by grace, the more it really is by works. That is why it is so important to maintain the correct biblical understanding of saving grace as God's free favor, not as, as an infused something in us. The right biblical understanding of grace as favor corresponds exactly to the biblical sense of justification as imputation rather than implantation of righteousness. Before Luther understood this, the very idea of the righteousness of God had seemed tormenting and hateful to him. And, you know, when we think of the righteousness of God, the, the purity, the, the sinlessness, the all holiness of God, that's the that's the thing that people can't endure the thought of standing before. I mean, you know, this, this is Moses at the burning bush. This is the people at Mount Sinai who see this spectacle of God on top of the mountain and fire and, you know, voice. And they're like, um, you go, we're staying here. 
we want nothing to do with that. Um, and, you know, by grace, they're allowed, uh, that Moses is allowed to go up and be with God. Um, it was nothing in Moses. It was all God's grace for him. Um, let's see. The right biblical understanding of grace is favor corresponds exactly to the biblical sense of justification as imputation. I already read that. Uh, he had taken this in good medieval fashion to mean the righteousness by which God demands righteousness of us. Only when we saw that Paul was speaking here of the righteousness which God gives us as a gift did it dawn on Luther what the gospel really is. So, in medieval fashion, not the righteousness by which God demands righteousness of us. In his perfectness, he wants us to be perfect. You know, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Um, that's a tall demand. I, I don't know many of us as children of earthly fathers would want to have to stand up and be as good as our own fathers were in many ways. Um, I think we always look at them and hold them up here. Um, some not, obviously. But, you know, it's, it's a hope every generation you do better than the last one. And, and to hope that we could be as good as God. Um, I don't know how many religions go off in the wrong manner on that and wanting to become gods themselves. Um, only, when Paul, only when he saw that Paul was speaking here of the righteousness which God gives us as a gift did it dawn on Luther what the gospel really is. At last, by the mercy of God, after I had poured over this night and day, I came upon the context of the words. In it, the righteousness is revealed as it is written. He, through faith, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand the righteousness of God as that by which the righteous one lives by means of a gift of God, which is truly by faith. And this is the meaning, through the gospel, it is revealed the righteousness of God, namely the passive righteousness by which merciful God justifies us through faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. At that moment I felt I had been born again and that I had entered paradise itself through open gates. So to realize that God is merciful to us, even as we are these terrible beggars and sinners because of Christ and what he has done, because of you know, and before Christ with Abraham in the promise of even a Savior coming, that your righteousness was in faith, having faith in the promise. And that faith itself was a gift from God that you could have. Um, so there's nothing left in it to be um, of us and our works. Um, any questions, thoughts? Okay, so what good works are we all going to do this afternoon? I don't know. <laughs> um, okay, so it's through faith. If justification comes as a free gift, that is, by grace, then it must be through faith. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace. A gift cannot be earned or paid for. It can only be received. And that is the entire function of faith and justification. It is simply the beggar's hand which takes hold of the precious present. Um, it's, uh, Pastor Feeney always used the uh, analogy that if, uh, if you know, you got that card in the mail that said, hey, you won a million dollars, you know, 
or even here's the check. If you looked at it and went, yeah, right, not trusting that, you know, and you threw it away, but you just didn't have faith to take it to the bank. Um, you know, where's your faith to believe? Um, so God gives us this gift, and thankfully, he also gives us the faith to believe in it as well. Um, the point is worth stressing because a lot of loose faith alone talk makes faith into a piece of religious bravado, which saves on that account. So understood or rather misunderstood, faith becomes the religious version of the secular boast, I did it my way. This sort of faith is simply self-projection, inner stamina, optimism in the face of adversity and the like. What matters then is the personal quality of faith, its sincerity, intensity, or perhaps even its humanitarian concern. Never mind the thorny question of its objective truth. But this is a secular character. It makes faith into another work, only an easier and more self-indulgent one that the old that indulgent one Boy, I start that one over. It makes faith into another work, only an easier and more self-indulgent one than the old monastic discipline. Um, easier, I don't know. You know. I mean, if only you had more faith. I mean, do you just want to slap somebody when they tell that to you? I mean, I literally did one night. I wanted to slap. I, I've told you this before. Had a patient dying. I remember he had ALS or something. He was not going to get better. He's just on the road. And his daughter comes in and stands at the foot of his bed and tells this man on a ventilator that, oh, daddy, if you only had more faith, you'd be able to get up out of this bed. I, I mean, okay, so now, yeah, Tammy? For post-traumatic or postpartum depression or whatever it is, yeah. Yeah. We aren't guaranteed a life of no suffering, and and we all suffer. I'm sure if each one of you walked into a room with someone that would be completely confident in what you said, and I had an interesting post on, I thought it was interesting, on Godestines, they were talking about, someone about pastors being able to confess and have a father confessor, and how they can't confess to their district presidents 
because their district presidents are in a place of ecclesiastical authority over them, so they need to find someone they can, and the word was, trust. I'm like, as a Christian, I should be able to walk in and talk to any pastor and confess my sin and know that it goes in this ear and it never comes out. It goes into a vault. Um, So we all suffer with consequences of sin, with sin, um, with hurting. And uh, sometimes you just need to share that with people and tell them of our pain so that they can walk alongside us and carry that pain with us. Um, Can we pray to God for forgiveness? Yes. Can we know we're forgiven? Yes. Um, Is whatever is causing that pain always going to be taken away? Whatever is even causing our sin going to be taken away? You know, if it's outside of us? No. Um, And what if we don't get healed? What if we continue to suffer with depression? What if we continue to suffer with cancer? What if we continue to suffer with gout in our big toe? I don't have gout. I just point to my big toe. Um, Does that mean we don't have faith? No. We're being refined. We're being being, um, in that crucible where we're tested and where we trust God. And what do we ultimately trust God for? Eternal life and a resurrection. Um... And that he'll give us the strength to carry on, if you will, in whatever struggle we have. Um, I mean, so, you know, for the guy lying in the bed, I mean, your face in the hope of the resurrection. When my eyes closed that last time, you know, and it's over, I'm hoping in the resurrection of my flesh, through faith in Christ, that I have an eternal life with him. For that person that's suffering with depression, um, your faith in Christ just hopes for a better day and the ability to endure today. And, and that is using the gifts he gives now, be it medicine, be it friends to talk to, be it professionals to talk to, um, to help you through those things. But to just turn your back on God because you keep praying, Lord, take this away from me. Well, that's what Paul did, whatever his problem was. And the Lord said, no, it's staying there. It, this is a thorn you're going to carry with you. And it, it causes us to just trust in God all the more. Uh, I know some things that people endure were God not in their life. You know, they're kind of, I'm over this way, no, now I'm back this way. And, oh, I'm over this way in the sin, now I'm back this way. And God's constantly drawing them back. Well, if they just say, well, forget you, God. You aren't helping me. Not maybe realizing the help he's given. All of a sudden, he says, okay, fine. Have it your way. And you go off this way and you keep going. You're like a, you know, sliced ball that may never get found. Um, So, you know, God helps us and, uh, you know, reigns people in. Uh, you know, without the grace of God, how otherwise bad might that person's depression be? Mercy of God's keeping them alive. So, um, so faith. You know, we make faith into a work that we want to see uh, some proof of ourselves in it, or some 
benefit we create in it, um, it's a gift from God. Uh, all, let's see, go to all such notions that have that give to faith a weight of its own are foreign to faith's true nature. The whole saving gift and power is not in faith, but in its object, Christ. Faith is but the humble setting which, having no value of its own, is, is, is precious only because it holds to the priceless jewel. It is this Christ-holding faith, not some dream about self-fulfillment, which is imputed or created as righteousness. So, if I had faith, I'd have X, Y, or Z. And when we trust in X, Y, or Z is proof of our faith versus when I have faith, I have Christ. And that's really where our faith is. Grace alone and faith alone. Granted that justification is by grace and through faith, must one, must one add the alone in each case? Is that really biblical, or are we de dealing here, as our modern ecumenical climate suggests, with one-sidedness and exaggeration on the part of the Reformation? Tammy, did I answer your question? Yeah. Kinda, sorta? Or do you want to drill me some more? No, I mean, you know, you know, the question is, for those not hearing, the question is about uh, postpartum depression and someone struggling with that. And, oh, Phil. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're, we're taught to wait. You know, we wait on God for the answer. You know, it, um, Israelites waited in the wilderness for 40 years, uh, and they all died off waiting because they did not trust in God. Um, and then they got in the promised land and they still didn't trust in God and they, you know, it's, it's the whole, it's our whole nature not to trust. Um, 
I guess that that's the beauty of it is that he leaves no doubt. It is his action, not ours. And when we want to start seeing, asking to see something as a result to prove, then, you know, we're setting up an idol for ourselves and what we want to see. Um, it, uh, it's kind of like, you know, in the story in the gospel today of the rich man and Lazarus. You know, the rich man didn't want to hear about Moses and the prophets. That wasn't going to be good enough for his five brothers who were still there so that they would be saved and repent. He wanted and demanded a miracle. He wanted someone to come back from the dead and say, you know, this is why you should repent, you know, because hell's there and it's true and, you know, heaven's there. Uh, Moses and the prophets that were given by God were not good enough. Um, so we, you know, we look to God's word and we look to his promise and realize that this, this life isn't going to be perfect. Um, and then take advantage of the, the, what he gives us to help in those situations. Friends, medicine, yes. Yeah, yeah. As a baptized child of, of God, um, Christ is with us, um, and even when we turn our back, um, He's never far, and He's patient and kind and loving and just waiting for that little bit. We just say, "Okay, you know, I'm I'm listening," um, and you know that faith is there. He will give us that faith to believe. Um, but he's not going to hold us in prison, if you will, in that faith. We have a free will. Um, so we need to search his word, listen to his word, hear his word, receive his gifts, receive communion. You know, I mean, is this person doing that? You know, in the, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and this as much sounds like spiritual warfare as anything. I mean, you pray. You pray for this person. You pray for their family. Yes. Mm-hmm. Your faith has made you well. Yeah, I mean, she grasps. Um, this was, I think, you're talking about the woman that uh, had uh, the issue of uh, bleeding, and he's going through a crowd, and she simply comes up behind him and just grabs his robe and touches it, and he's like, "Who touched me? Someone touched me," you know. And um, she had faith, and that just in touching him, 
you know, who he was. He had faith in who he was to heal. And I guess that the, um, you know, when, when Jesus turns to me and says, um, your faith has healed you, uh, the healing he's always talking about really is forgiveness. Has healed you of death of your sins. Um, the, the rising of a body or the healing of a leper or the healing of some illness is just to give visual evidence to the fact that he has the power to say your sins are forgiven. That's the real healing Christ brings. So to say, well, you know, I'm a leper and I didn't get healed. Well, what's harder to say? Your sins are forgiven or take your bed and get up. You know, and Jesus says, just so you know that I have the power to forgive sins, he tells the guy, take up your bed and walk. And the guy does. And they're all like, who is this? You know, it's the power of God. So, um, we're not guaranteed an easy way. Um, as a matter of fact, we're guaranteed suffering and persecution and everything else. And when people see that in you or I, um, if they see you still have faith in Christ, you still have faith in the resurrection, well, doggone it, you know, how can you say that you're a child of God because you suffer with this? You got cancer and you're dying. Who's this Jesus guy? What's he done for you? Well, you know, everybody's going to die. And Jesus promises resurrection and life. So... Still not sure I answered it. Um, okay. The fact is that the alones faithfully reflect the Bible's exclusion of everything else from justification. Typical texts are Romans 3.21, apart from the law. Uh, 3.28, apart from the works of the law. 4.6, apart from works. Ephesians, from not from yourselves, not by works, not because of the righteous things we have done. So if works and law are excluded from justification then only grace and faith remain. Um, St. Augustine put it, grace is not grace if it is not free. Grace is not grace in any way unless it is grace in every way. One, bit, one way of evading the clear force of the text is to argue that St. That Paul was excluding only the works of the ceremonial Old Testament law, not those of the moral law or the Ten Commandments. Paul, however, makes it quite clear that the law which cannot save is precisely the moral law. He writes, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I, where's my flesh? Uh, would have not known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The reference clearly is to the Ninth and Tenth Commandments and so to the moral law. It is simply not the purpose of the law to give salvation. For no one will be declared righteous, justified in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sins. And, you know, if you, if you, if you look at the law on a cursory level, you know, the old, you know, I've never murdered anybody, but the deeper you go, <laughs> wow. And, and, you know, uh, try adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You know, I mean, I, you know, 
okay, you know, I, I never slept with a married woman other than mine. You know, but, I mean, people will take that to just such extremes uh, or not to extremes to realize what adultery really is um, and how sinful we really are in our natures. Um, you know, the Bible talks about plucking out your eye if you sin. And I'll apply that to adultery. And um, we'd all be walking around blind, um, you know. So um, the law isn't something we can keep. It only accuses. It, it just accuses and accuses and accuses until the, when we finally realize that, yeah, we really need that grace. This was Luther's thing. The law just accused him so heavily of his sin as a monk you know, I mean, we've all had their stories about him as, you know, going to his father confessor and confessing his sins on his knees. And, okay, your sins are forgiven. And he walks out of the room and he gets halfway down the hall. Oh, man. You know, goes back and, you know, he just kept going back and back. I'm like, stop it. You know, it's like, it's, it's not possible to confess all of your sins. That's why we confess things we've done, things we've left undone. Um, we sin and we don't know it. God knows it. Um, our whole life is a heap of sin. Um, therefore, we need this grace. To think that this grace is something that we're infused with that now allows us to keep the law. Misery of miseries. You know, if you think you're going to try and do that one, then to what degree do I keep that law? Do I just not murder somebody? You know, do I not just sleep with a married woman other than my wife? You know, and other than that, I've never committed adultery. You know, no. Um, and coveting, you know, just the, you know, coveting uh, is just, leads to all of them. You know, you covet things and you seek to get them through means that aren't proper and, you know, I mean, it drives people just to all kinds of sin. Um, and so, the reference clearly is, is to the ninth and 10th commandments and, and so to the moral law. It is simply not the purpose of the law to give salvation for no one will be declared righteous, justified in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Another way to evade the exclusion of works from justification is to say, very well, Paul throws out works of the law, but he obviously means only works done before conversion, before a person has entered the state of grace. But works done once but works done once one is under the gospel and in grace are different, and Paul does not exclude them. It is plain, however, that Abraham um, had been in the state of grace for many years and that he was not justified by his good works all of those years. Um, let me read this again without reading it out loud. Um, also, a literal translation of Titus 3.5 reads, not out of the works which we did in righteousness. In other words, even the works of righteous or justified persons do not save. Um, if that were the case, you would receive justification, but then you'd have to work to keep it. So, 
Then you, then you need a scorecard. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't even like doing it. You know, this is the pros of this idea, and this is the cons of this idea. Much less, this is what I've done to save myself, and this is how I goofed up, and how am I going to weigh those? I mean, this is Christ in the balance. Here's all our sin, just and Christ. Um, we don't have enough good works to overcome our evil. Not possible. Our sinful natures would like to say, yeah, I did all those good things. You know, I go to church every Sunday. Well, I guess the sinful part is I, I sort of have to. So, you know, how many Sundays do I wake up and think, yeah, I'd just like to keep driving. Maybe go down to the golf, you know, I don't know. Do I say I never think that? That would be a lie. Yeah, I mean, you know, work weighs on all of us, you know, whatever it is. Um, but we just can't keep, it's not a balance sheet. It's either all grace or we're doomed. To include if salvation is by grace at all, then it is by grace alone. And if through faith at all, then through faith alone. Um, we're going to stop there at the breaking point. Any questions, thoughts, other things that I can't answer? No. Okay. Well, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord be with you. Amen.